happy to say, Bread for the People has a new sponsor. Farmer Ground Flour was nice enough to sponsor Bread for the People, and I wanted to tell you a little bit more about them. Here's what I discovered. So, it's a team of conscientious millers and farmers that was started in about 2009 by three friends, Greg Russo, Neil Johnson, and Thor Oxner. They're rooted in the Finger Lakes region, and they use local organic grains and focus on supporting local communities. They're committed to leading the growth of sustainable grain economy. Farmer Ground has designed their stone ground milling process to retain the integrity of the grain, allowing natural nutrients, fibers, oils, and flavors to speak for themselves. I particularly like baking with the high extraction bread flour. It's an 85% extraction flour that is sifted to remove a large portion of the bran while retaining the wheat germ, resulting in great flavors and nutrition. Go to FarmerGroundFlour.com to learn more. I highly recommend Farmer Ground, and I'd like to thank them for sponsoring Bread for the People. My name's Jim Serpico, and this... Should I start with my name, or should I start with this is Bread for the People? Do you like it like this? Welcome to Bread, or do you like it like this? Welcome. Ready? Welcome to Bread for the People. Mine... Is there a script? We're here with Amy Emberling, a managing partner at Zingerman's Bakehouse. Zingerman's Bakehouse's mission is the relentless pursuit of being the best bakery that can be. They're true artisan bakers, which means they use traditional recipes, time-honored processes, and their hands. They bake fresh every day, and in fact, if I have my information correct, today, we have eight-grain, three-seed bread, Detroit street sourdough bread, Dinkelbrot, which I believe is spelt bread, French baguettes, and a lot more. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was was a a nice surprise to get your email. Oh, that's so cool. Now, am I correct in that Dinkelbrot is spelt? Spelt. It's spelt. Absolutely. It's spelt. It's just Dinkel is spelt uh, in German. Oh, Okay. Very cool. And that's a tough bread to work with, isn't it? Spelt. Well, it's, um, it's kind of messy. It's a little sloppy, uh, as is rye. So uh, it's a little stickier than using wheat. Yeah, my, my uh, understanding on those two and the combination of rye and spelt, and I hope this is not getting too much into the weeds for our listeners, is that there's not a lot of gluten structure in spelt. So for the right. beginning baker, it makes it a lot harder to work with. Absolutely. It does have protein, which gluten is um, a couple of different proteins, but it's a different combination. And so it doesn't actually give the structure that wheat does. All right. So you're a managing partner at Zingerman's Bakehouse. Zingerman's is world renowned. I first heard of it from friends of ours who had children that went to University of Michigan. And if anyone's ever gone to the University of Michigan or you're about to go, the first question they ask is, have you been to Zingerman's Bakehouse? Uh, actually, Delicatessen, I'm sorry. Yeah. Delicatessen. It's okay. And that's something I want to get into also. But I have actually tried to, in my, my trip in the spring to Ann Arbor, of course, you know, I'm into baking. I hear about this all the time. We went, man, and it was a two-hour wait. 
two-hour wait. And I was like, it's not going to be on this trip. I'm going to have to wait another time. But you guys must be doing something right. Could you tell us the difference between the bakehouse and the delicatessen and a little bit about the structure? I understand that there's 11 companies in the Zingerman's family. Is that right? Right. Yes. Yes. So uh, the structure, I think, is really interesting. And it's one of the reasons why I decided to be here. So the first of all the businesses was Zingerman's Delicatessen, and it opened in 1982, and it was founded by uh, Paul Saginaw and Ari Weinsweig. And then about 10 years later, 1992, they were trying to figure out what are they going to do? How did they want to grow their business? And they had a lot of, you know, sort of different options. Many people said, you should just franchise. Why don't you open up a deli in, you know, Arkansas or St. Louis? And you mentioned University of Michigan, and it's really been a great thing for us. And you have all these alumni who leave every year. I mean, literally, you know, tens of thousands. And they go to their hometown or they move to where they're going to have their first job. And they say, why didn't you bring a deli here? So that was something they considered. But they made a different choice. And uh, they decided to create what we now call a community of businesses. So they decided that they wanted to give an opportunity to other artisans, people who had a real passion about a particular kind of food, and they wanted to help them open their own business and that we would share the name Zingerman's, but each entity would be separately owned, except they would have some ownership in each one of them. In addition to that ownership and artisanship, all of them would stay and uniqueness, all the businesses would stay in Ann Arbor. So you may have noticed we have 11 businesses, but they're all you know, within the Ann Arbor area. So 1992, uh, the Bakehouse opens, and we were second of the Zingerman's businesses. Um, and uh, th the way that came about was, you know, bread was 60% of all the transactions, the delicatessen at that time. And so they, they, and they couldn't quite get the bread that they wanted. Um, so they uh, uh, already said to the founder of the Bakehouse, Frank Carrillo, who actually retired a year and a half ago because we we're just about to have our 30th anniversary. He was a bit beat and he needed a break. So, but Ari said to him, hey, uh, Frank, you know, why don't we open a bakery together? And uh, that was the name of the bakehouse in 1992. Wow. So for those of us who aren't so familiar with, you know, the, the layout of Ann Arbor and how big it is, if you have 11 businesses within Ann Arbor, how close are they? What's the square mileage? Yeah, Do they compete you, with each other? Sure. I can't really tell you what the square mileage is. Not the kind of thing I usually keep track of. No, Frank here, he would know. But uh, so this is how it works and why the businesses are really pretty synergistic and we don't compete very much. Uh, so there's the delicatessen, and that's in an area that's called Carytown. It's about a seven-minute walk from uh, University of Michigan's central campus. About a 15-minute drive from there is what we call Zingerman Southside, and it's in southern Ann Arbor. Um, and that's where we have the bakehouse, the creamery that makes fresh cheese and gelato, the coffee company, and Zing Train, which is our business that teaches our business practices. And so we refer to that whole area as Southside. It's really where the artisan producers are. So we each have a little shop, but we only sell what we make. So the delicatessen is like our flagship. So people, you know, if we're in the New York area or Chicago area, have that Italy. Think of it like the deli is like the Italy of Zingerman's and has everything of all the businesses. But you could come to 
thing on the south wow. side and you could just come to the bakery and get what the bakery makes or just go to the creamery and get cheese. And it's an industrial park, so it's it's a little hard to get people out here. But, uh, wow. you know, it's an interesting kind of little neighborhood. Then five minutes, a little bit um, east and a little bit south of us is Zingerman's Mail Order, which sells everything that all of us make and then food from all over the world. Uh, Zingerman's Roadhouse is on the west side of town. So it's, um, uh, it's yeah, due west of Delicatessen by a, probably a 10 or 12 minute drive. And that's an all-American restaurant. And very close to the deli is another restaurant called Miss Kim. And it is a Korean restaurant. Uh, then first away is Zingerman's Corn Man Farm. And it's an event venue. Uh, where they they do their own cooking and um, really host all kinds of weddings and corporate events. So I think I've named everybody. Yeah, that's a lot. Now you're a managing partner, according to my notes, at the Bakehouse. So right. are you primarily, if that's your role, you're not so involved in the day-to-day of these other companies. Absolutely. You're, you're involved in the Bakehouse. I, I was going to ask that if the Bakehouse provides – all the bread needs of the other Zingerman companies. Yes. So pretty much anything that's baked in the organization, in the community is baked by us. So not absolutely everything. So if you go to the roadhouse right now, they have blueberry uh, cobbler on their dessert menu. They're making that themselves, but most, all of the bread and most of the desserts sold in the organization are made by us. That's amazing. Now, you've personally been at Zingerman's for a long time, <laughs> yes. right? We, we don't have to maybe mention the years unless you want to, but it's I don't been mind. A, a number I, of years. I think, I, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can see what I look like. I can't hide. Yeah, I came here in 1992, so I was all of 26. Now I'm 56. Uh, I did leave for about four years, uh, but I've been here much since then so in the time that the bakery opened there were eight of us i was an hourly employee there were all this was the second zingerman's business and i just told you about this community of businesses well we didn't talk about the community of businesses back then there was just the deli and then there was just the bakehouse and i don't think most of us and i don't even think polinari knew exactly you know had clear in their mind exactly what was going to happen so, yeah, I've been here a long time. I've seen it change and evolve and participated in making it change and evolve. Now, when you were a young person in junior high school, high school, is this where you thought you would be <laughs> at this stage in your life? You know, that's pretty funny. Um, you know, I always loved restaurants, and I would beg my mm-hmm. parents to go out to eat, and uh, I was so... I can imagine a little bit thinking I might own a restaurant, but I probably thought I'd be a lawyer or, you know, a professor or something like that. But the restaurant thing was uh, certainly a part of my childhood and cooking and baking. My nickname as a kid, an older brother was Baker Woman. So I loved doing it. I think I didn't think I would really make it happen, but, you know, it did. <laughs> yeah. And, and you grew up in Nova Scotia, right? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. On Cape Breton Island. So who were your influences in terms of baking and how did you learn that? Yeah, you know, it was kind of interesting. Um, There wasn't really, there was not a a bakery that you could 
go to, except for the Woolworths, and we called it the five and 10. Uh, and they had donuts, yeah. <laughs> they had donuts, chocolate covered donuts that we would beg my mother for on um, Saturdays. So wait, that, that was like, that was the quintessential countertop, right? Yes. Yeah. With, yeah. I mean, there's like one left in the country. I think I was there, but that's, that was a really cool place. Yeah. It's sort of funny. It was, yeah. that was the seventies in this little town. In Nova Scotia. And then there was a delicatessen there, believe it or not. And the owners were Ike and Tootsie and Ike was cranky and Tootsie was loud. And um, they had really good, uh, what we called French bread and rye bread and pumpernickel that we would go and pick up. Uh, my parents never came to synagogue. I happened to be Jewish. They didn't come, but they would take us there and they would pick us up. And then they would take us to Ike and Tootsie's and we would buy, you know, smoked meat and rye bread and pumpernickel. And so I, that was another sort of influence. But my grandma baked. And uh, we had a family friend who was Italian, and she made a lot of delicious things, and I would follow her around and ask her to teach me. So I had sort of those. Oh, and then I lived next door to a family of eight kids, the Malloys, and that house was crazy. And there was always food all over the, you know, in the kitchen that I didn't really recognize. So it was a nice sort of counter to what we ate at my house, plum pudding and you know, obviously I knew what apple pie was, but so that was another big influence was um, cooking of that family. Okay. And then when you move on to figure out what you're going to do with your life and decide to go to college, what did you, what did you study? I studied. Um, so there's this, I was at Harvard and there's this department there that still exists. It has the worst name ever. You're going to laugh. It was called social studies. So everybody makes fun of it to this day. I don't even like to explain it. And it was sort of an, uh, you know, interdisciplinary. You actually had to apply after you got in, you had to apply to be able to get into this program. And you um, had to take a certain amount of kind of social philosophy, sociology and history and economics, but you could put together what you wanted to study. So I studied American social movements. And uh, it's actually a good connection to why I'm at Zingerman's because it was about, you know, I really wanted to know what, how you brought about change and how, why were some movements successful and why were other movements not successful. And here at Zingerman's, I really think an underpinning of the work that we're doing is trying to do things differently. So in a sense, it's um, building a community that is trying to bring about change in the workplace. So it, it kind of fit, it really fits with what I was interested in on a more philosophical level. So what kind of change in the workplace have you guys uh, brought forward? Yeah, well, I, you know, that's a really interesting question. Um, We're really known for service. And I know every company talks about service. They say, oh, we give good service. But we really define service. And then we teach what the definition is. And we track service. Like we write, I ask our, you know, frontline staff to document what we call code so if a customer is unhappy about something or a customer just makes a suggestion about something different they want, that all gets documented. And then code greens when somebody's happy. So how we do service, I really think, at, has changed how other people do service in the Ann Arbor area. And then through ZingTrain, our training company, I mean, they teach people from all over the country and all over the world about lots of things we do. But I really think that we've made some uh, sort of a difference in terms of service. But... 
Sure. We also practice open book management, which we did not create, but I think it really made a big difference for people who work in our businesses because we teach them about the game of business. So they're not just coming to work and, you know, rolling their thousandth roll, you know, piece of bread dough. They're really learning about, you know, what makes a difference in a bakery, what makes a difference in making great food and how it all plays out financially. So I think creating that work environment um, is truly making a difference. To what extent are they privy to open book? I mean, the books are like 100% open? Yeah. The only thing that's not open is what everybody earns. But they have complete access to the, the P&L and the cash flow statement. Now, not very many people oh. ask to see that. And so, but it's there if they want. But what happens really day to day is that each department in Zingerman Community of Businesses is supposed to have a weekly, what we call a huddle. And at the huddle, that department goes over um, the key metrics, the key financial and management metrics for their area. Usually that group defined said what they want the key metrics to be. So I'll give you an example. In our bread bakery, they meet weekly and they talk about what were the sales? What were the sales last week? supposed to be what did we say what was the plan what did we think they were going to be what had we forecasted and then what was the actual then they talk about okay the week that we're in and next week what do we think it's supposed to be and how are we going to get there then they talk about the food cost the labor cost uh and then they talk about things like accidents you know safety uh measures uh how many people aren't out of their basic training sort of more management metrics when the whole bakehouse meets, we also talk about what our cash is, what our profit is. They, they have access to all that information. And it's not just access, but they are taught what it means and what you do to impact it. Now, you mentioned uh, social change and community, and we talked about you know, how you guys deal with that internally. Externally, I think it's pretty known that Zingerman's gives back to the community in a big way in several different ways. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So we give back about 10% of our net operating profit every year to the community in terms of wow. cash and income. So every year. The, That's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, you know, I really learned the generosity. It's so interesting, you know, how they often say businesses are really reflect the values of the leaders and um, both Paul and Ari are incredibly generous people, generous of spirit and generous financially. And then Frank Carolla, who was the founder of the bake. Also, I've just learned from him about the, about being generous. I always think that emotionally I've always been generous with people and happy to give time and energy and support, but I was not maybe always as financially generous as they. I'm not always sure I had the resources that they had, but they, uh, right from the beginning, you know, Paul said, I really, it's important to me that we give back to the community. So we've made this agreement amongst the partners to give back uh, 10% of our profit. And so we give to all kinds of the not-for-profits in, that were in, the, in town. Uh, we help build what's called the Delanis Center for the Homeless. I think we pledged something like $250,000 to get that building built and and ring. Then we also were the founding business for what's called Food Gatherers. That is was one of the first organizations that uh, collects food from restaurants and um, grocery stores that was going to be thrown away in order to, you know, repurpose it and get it to people who really need it. So in all those ways, that's that's how we give to the community. 
That's so cool. We have something similar that we participate in. Someone started an app called Too Good To Go. So if a restaurant, or in our case, we're at a farmer's market and we have leftover bread, people know and they could come there and pick it up for like a third of the retail price. Um, it's, it's pretty cool because there is a lot of food waste. People don't realize how much oh, there is, especially I find in baking. You know, for me in the farmer's markets, I can project what I'm going to sell. But this past weekend is a perfect example. It was 95 degrees and humid, and nobody wanted to come out. I had my typical bake, and I probably sold 50% of what I normally sell. Oh, wow. Uh, So then you're trying to figure out what are you doing with this bread, you know? Right. It happens all the time. So how did you get into this whole baking world? How did I get into the baking world? I was a hobbyist that found myself with a lot of time at the beginning of COVID, and it was a bonding experience between myself, my wife, and my three kids. Uh, my older son was at USC in Los Angeles and came home because there was no in-person classes. And uh, my other two sons were home, and we just started doing it, and we created an Instagram account called Side Hustle Bread. That was our inside joke. And people started asking for the bread. So one thing led to another at- you know, I'm somewhat of an entrepreneur at heart, and uh, we started selling that bread. And little by little, we became known and invited to farmers markets. And you know, we're about two and a half years in, and uh, I've been baking every day for two and a half years, feeding my starter. You know, learning about it. I love to learn. I'm very curious. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast was to speak to people like you, uh, pizza makers business entrepreneurs, and just learn as much as I can about the world. I'm not sure where I'm taking this skill or group of skills that I have, but I but I enjoy baking, and I enjoy seeing people enjoy what I've baked. But I'm not sure what my personal business model is. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because I do have another career. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I, I, presently I'm actually, what I'm really spending more time on than I have been since I started baking is trying to merge my passion for content and food. And we're starting to pitch some, some food television shows, um, not in the non-scripted world. So we'll, we'll see where it takes us. I don't know. Having fun. Have fun. Yeah. You know, it's Um, been a a challenging couple of years that we all know that. And we're about to write the next vision for the bakery. It's not really a budget. It's not a strategic plan. It's more, or a picture in the future, you know, five years from now, if we're successful, what does it look like? And what's really big for me at the moment is trying to make the vision about playfulness because there's the last couple of years have not been very playful. And I think we do our best work. We make the most delicious food or we write the best scripts or we film the best thing if we're really loving it and we're just playing. So, um, you know, I hope that you're playing and you're liking it. And I think, um, that's what I'm going to try to get people here Absolutely. to feel a little more playful. Right. We'll see how long I can afford to well, be playful. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Sometimes that comes into yeah. play. <laughs> so to speak. Um, now you mentioned you went, you mentioned you went to Harvard. I, I did want to talk to you about that. Um, I just read an article, you know, Harvard puts out obviously so many successful people, but in the, in the, in the arts and television and film, I recently read an article about a writer saying it was a struggle for him because everyone's threatened and 
looks down upon the people that came out of the Harvard Lampoon and feel that they are privileged. In my mind, I know what it's like to get into a school of good quality. Um, I don't see it as privilege. I see it as somebody who combined uh, working their ass off um, and, and doing what it takes. And also beyond academics, they had to have other things to offer the school. But I was wondering if you've encountered anything like that where Harvard was actually a crutch. Hmm. Well, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Actually, no one has ever asked me that question in the early years working in the food business. Because first I worked in some restaurants for a few years before I found um, Zingerman's. I think more what I got from people was um, respect, kind of the attitude that you're I mean, that was a while ago now. I graduated in 1988. So we weren't, that word privilege was not a word that was in the vernacular. People were not talking about who had privilege, right? So there was a little, there was some okay. respect, a little bit of, oh, wow. And after that, it was more, the question was, well, if you knew that you were going to do this, would you have bothered? Which I always thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went to Harvard because, I thought that's where you, I thought I would get educated. I was going to learn. And I spent a lot of time studying and trying to, you know, it's like a, a liberal arts education. So I said, no, of course I would have gone because I was not going there looking for, um, looking for, you know, uh, uh, some particular skill. I just wanted to be educate, you know, learn about the world. Um, many years later, I went to my 25th reunion and I kind of looked around and I thought, well, God, maybe being educated was not what Harvard was about. It was about um, figuring, learning how to be the powerful and influential people in the world. And I was not interested in doing that. I was interested in, you know, doing in kind of interesting and service kind of things in the world. Even though I bake, you know, I think I'm trying to develop people at the bakery. So um, anyway, I would have, that, that was more the attitude. And now it's some years later, the people don't even ask me, you know, nobody cares what I did so long ago. And it's not that much of my identity. You know, at this point, what I've done in the last 15 or 20 years is much more formative than having gone to Harvard. So uh, I even, you know, I don't know if you know many people who went to Harvard, but there's that joke that, you know, you never say that you went to Harvard. You just say, uh, oh, I went to college in Boston. And you make people ask you until you eventually right. say, well, I don't even bother with that anymore. I just say, yeah, I went to Harvard. Big deal. Whatever. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. I've read something also that you're into organizational design. And that also makes me question how much of your role has to do with the actual baking and developing the recipes and how much does it have to do with the management of the bakehouse? Yeah. So at this point... I spend only 20% of my time baking. I spend, mm -hmm. you know, another five to 10% on top of that, talking about product development or uh, doing the work on product development. But the rest of my time is really spent leading the organization and um, trying to provide a workplace in which people can really learn and grow and have a very positive daily um, experience. You know, we spend so much of our time at work, really want to make it a place that um, people love coming to 
and that they can develop. We get a lot of young people here. My goal is to help them figure out who they want to be, where they want to go and help them get there. Even if it, you know, often it means leaving the bakery, which is a-okay with me. Maybe they realize they want to do something else or they want to open their own bakery, whatever it happens to be. So I spend a lot of my time doing that. And then, um, yeah, trying to uh, create culture and lead in a way that um, helps us figure out what culture we want to have at the bakery, that organizational design. That's amazing. You know, because I always, as much as I'm into learning how to bake bread, I don't have any idea how to run a bakery. And I was wondering, you know, and you just said it, some of these people come through and, and it's, you guys are okay with that. You come here, you work as long as you want. You know, you're an asset to us. We're, we're giving you the training and then hopefully you're happy if they do go on to open up a successful bakery somewhere I, else. I am. I find it daunting, you know, personally. And that's one of the reasons I say I don't know what I'm doing with bread right now because I can't imagine a successful bakery around where I live uh, that just deals with bread unless, you know, you're, you're, the delicatessen is using the amazing bread that you make to serve other things, right? Um, and I guess it would have to be something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, it's possible that you could have a bakery that only made bread and um, didn't wholesale. But I think for us, we were really, really fortunate because when we started, we had this big, big customer waiting for us, Zingerman's Delicatessen. And, and right, so that right. gave us a big um, cushion and a, or a strong foundation is probably a better way of saying it to get going. I think within a year and a half or two years, we were profitable and they were our only customer. So, you know, we're very indebted to wow. them, very grateful. Like they were so busy. But that was very yes. unique because what I had read is the founders were not happy with the bread they were bringing right. in, which is why they decided to start baking their yes. own bread. Yes, is that exactly. Right? You're right. I mean, that, that's pretty unique. It's the kind of the flip side of what usually <laughs> right. happens. Yes. So we were really lucky. And now, though, 45% of what we bake, we sell to the organization. The rest, we either sell ourselves out of our own retail shop or we have all kinds of um, wholesale customers. So it's continued to evolve. You know, a lot of it has to do with perseverance, you know, and kind of uh, figuring out how to hang in there. Sometimes I think the reason we last and some of our competitors don't is just pure old perseverance and willingness to be uncomfortable for long periods of time. You know, I see other people close, they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm like thinking, oh, I don't know why I don't just quit, but that's, we just quit. We just, hey, we just stay and, uh, you know, try to manage the cash to stay and have enough. And, and then it's, it's interesting. Do the, keep trying to do the right things and it's seeming to work out. That's cool. And you locally source most of your We try to source locally as much as possible. Obviously, there's some things you can't, like vanilla bean doesn't come locally, but you know, our apples come from a farm that's literally 10 minutes away from us. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to this place called Frankenmuth to meet up with this farmer who's going to grow, uh, who we're actually, we're going to buy 25,000 pounds of uh, soft white wheat berries. So those are a couple of examples. All our dairy is local. 
local um, cherries. Michigan's a big cherry state, so any cherries that we use. So Michigan is a great agricultural state. I don't think we talk about it that much like that. In the United States, we think of it as the car industry state, but it's a very big agricultural state. Yeah. And so we're able to get a lot of things that we use locally. Uh, so then that is part of the community and being local. So, you know, buy local, invest in the people around you. We're trying to do. I kn- you spent a lot of time in France. Was it, was it like a no, few years? I was years? only there for about seven months. Seven okay, months. seven months. And what did you do there that inspired you so well, much? Because you, know, you became well acquainted, acquainted with yeah, bread baking, right? And, and with cooking. So what happened was I had thought I would, as I said earlier, you know, maybe I'll go to law school. I came to Ann Arbor with my boyfriend at the time who became my husband, and he was going to graduate school here. And I thought, I'm going to work in some restaurants for fun. I love food. I'll go back to school. Uh, I'll get a PhD in sociology or I'll go to law school. Well, I loved working in restaurants and then I applied to University of Michigan Law School and I did not get it. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do? Well, you know what? I really love this restaurant world. I'm going to go to cooking school. But my husband and I were kind of crazy. We got married really young. I wasn't quite 23 when we got married. And then we had our first child when I was um, like, 24 and a half. So when it was time to go to cooking school, I already had this little baby Jake and my husband was still in graduate school. And I'm like, how am I going to do this? I can't, there was no cooking school in Ann Arbor. So we figured out how to go to Paris. My husband got a grant to study. He's an archeologist. So he's going to study um, a collection of pottery at the Louvre. And I uh, was going to go to this school called Lava Rin, which was very famous. It's now closed. And they had a, a school in Paris, and they had one in Burgundy. Right before we were going to go, they closed the school in Paris. And they said, no, you can go to Burgundy. I said, no, I can't go to Burgundy. I have this baby. I have this husband. So I ended up going to school. At, there's a school in the Ritz Hotel in Paris. And you can take um, month, multi-month-long class there. You can take a class for a day, or you can stay for weeks. And so that's what I ended up doing. And it was really, really great. I didn't need, you know, a lot of American schools at that time, you know, you'd get associate's degrees or a whole bachelor's, but I didn't need that because I hadn't gone to college. So what I got out of going, being there in France was, I mean, they're just dedication to perfection and, you know, perfect flavor, perfect execution, beauty in the food is uh, sort of the rigor and the practice that you can learn by being with them is, I think, invaluable. So that's mainly that's mainly what I got while I was there. It was it was very very helpful. Learning is just the right way. Then then that's you come great. back and you do it in you know and, and, it's and not, you, you don't always do it exactly as they say when you're in the actual working environment. Right? Are they always baking with natural yeast and uh, sourdough no, flour in there? You know are they, they are the, the French yeast? are just like us. I mean, you can find the whole range of. Great bread and terrible bread in France. So there's lots of wonderful artisan bakers okay. making natural leaven bread. Uh, and then there are, you know, the wholly, completely manufactured, pumped up with yeast, preservatives, sugars, which you can also find. So do you mind if we get into the weeds on some of the actual products, the bread no, products? No, we can. 
like rye bread, Jewish rye bread okay. in particular, I'm very interested in. And I know you seem to have a, a wealth of knowledge there. I've read an article that you wrote about it. Um, I can remember what I is wrote. Is there a difference between U- European? Uh, let's see. Where was this one? It's in my hand. 2016. Jewish rye bread from Eastern Europe to Eastern North America. I'm, I'm wondering if there's a big difference between European rye and what people are generally used to in the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. It's entirely different. So rye bread, sort of delicatessen Jewish rye bread, has hardly any rye flour in it at all. Some of them you possibly not have any rye flour. So we had a teacher here. His name is Michael London. He lives in upstate New York, Saratoga Springs. He would be a great person for you to speak to if he's available. He's in his 70s now. And he taught us how to make the rye bread that we make. And he said, Amy, he would call me Amalach. Amalach, um, most of the rye breads, they take rye and they hold it over the loaf of the bread as it's baking. It doesn't have any rye in it whatsoever. So while European rye breads have a lot of real rye in it and they tend to be dense and they're often naturally leavened, they might have a little commercial yeast in it, but because they're mainly rye, they're not soft like Jewish rye breads. They're dense and you would come in very thin pieces generally. Maybe you eat it with butter, maybe with some kind of preserves or smoked salmon. While the rye bread that we think of in, in uh, sort of American delicatessens is mainly white flour with a little bit of uh, rye flour mixed in. Uh, so it's, it's entirely different and lots of commercial yeast. Okay. Now, I have spoken to other bakers about rye bread. I, I found a recipe that I use in, um, I think it's called the Book of Jewish Bakers, where I actually use sour cream in my oh, rye wow. bread. But I haven't come across many other people that do. I was wondering no. if you guys use it. That's fascinating. No. I think that I think that helps makes it um, a little softer, uh, even if it's naturally leavened, which does tend to. So, be if, do you? Um, yeah, do you have a sour? Do, what kind of starter are you using with it, or is it all commercial yeast? I could I do it with both. Um, I I do a lot of sourdough baking, and you know I I generally make my rye bread with natural sourdough. And I sometimes use caraway seeds, sometimes don't. My, my specialty bread is Italian prosciutto bread, which is prosciutto, salami, pepperoni, and sharp provolone and black pepper. And it's, it's a local tri-state New York Italian thing that people have grown up on. But as I started to infuse bread with meat, I, I said, why can't I do this with pastrami? And I, I started doing a pastrami oh, in the rye, fun. the same way yeah. I do the Italian prosciutto yeah. breads. And uh, it's pretty cool. It gets, that's got a that great flavor. idea. You know, I, I just, uh, I, I love trying to combine, you know, ingredients and do that thing. But yeah, I do use sour cream and I haven't cr- come across no, many people who do. Do you use, uh, I guess, you know, certain rich breads, you use, you must use milk for certain yeah. breads, so right? So we make... Um, we make milk a brioche that has lots of milk and butter and eggs in it. Um, we make challah that does not have milk in it, but it has lots of eggs in it and a really great corn oil. Um, we 
make something that we call bakehouse white that has milk in it. It's like a traditional French pan to me, but uh, <clears throat> we bake it in a more of an American pan. So it's like a white bread. It's very enriched. Yeah, and our rye, what I like about it is that we use um, rye bread from the day before and we mash it up and add water to it mm -hmm. and we call it old and it's listed on the ingredient list as old right. and that goes in and so you know they say that sort of the it's the spiritual part of baking where you know something from yesterday into today but it's also just the economic part of bakers you know if you had bread as you did after the market the other day left on your shelf what are you going to do with it do you just going to throw it away no so they would take it and they would make it you know, they'd mash it up and it would kind of save them and putting, uh, like stretch the dough so they would make more loaves of bread the next day. So they didn't throw it out. So we continue okay. to do that with our rye bread. That's cool. The, the Detroit street sourdough bread. Is there anything particular about that bread that, that you decided to name it Detroit? Is it different than a regular country it's sourdough? A, it's a, uh, no, what's different about it is that it has a seed topping on it that the other sourdough doesn't. So it's got, um, yeah, okay. fennel, poppy, and sesame seed on top. But you know, it's a funny story about our sourdough. Did you happen to notice it was listed as better than San Francisco sourdough? I don't know if you saw that anywhere. I, I did not, but I'm, I could guess why. Because I might <laughs> well, have the same issue. Yeah. Um, is 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 it is your sourdough not no, very sour it's tasting? No, it's sour. But what happened was we were making it, and we called it San Francisco style sourdough, or San Francisco sourdough. And then we got a call one time from a famous baker, okay. bakery in San Francisco, that said, "You can't call it San Francisco sourdough. That's a uh, you know intellectual property infringement." And so Paul Saginaw, who is a very funny guy, said to the lawyer. Okay, well, could we call it better in San Francisco sourdough? And the lawyer said, sure. And so well, that's what the bread is called, better than San Francisco sourdough. It's kind of crazy, but that's what happened. That's amazing. Now, that's reminding me of another story I read about, uh, which I wasn't going to go to right now. But in terms of the name Zingerman's, that was not the original name no, from Paul and no, Art. No, it was going to be Greenberg. But uh, then they got a call. Not before they were going to open. Wait, wait. Before that, they they went as far as Green Greenberg was a customer That's of right. theirs, from what That's I understand. Right. That uh, they loved, and they they took her out on a photo shoot and a marketing campaign, and they started to launch it with the name. And then they got the That's call. That's right, from someone to, right? in Detroit. There's the sign. Don't call it that. Please don't call it that. So then they had to come up with another name. Do you know the story about why it starts with a right. Z? I know that they wanted it to either start with an A or a Z. Yeah, you did your homework. Right? Um, which I think is very smart. I did my homework. Um, and they went through. They had a few yeah, beers, yeah. from what I understand. And they landed on Zingerman. So Paul's grandfather, this was when we still had phone books. And Paul's grandfather told him, pick an A name or a Z name. It makes it easier when somebody's looking it up in the phone book. So that's how that came to be. Yeah, they were sitting on the floor of Paul's kitchen drinking some beer and uh, came up with the name. It's a long time ago. Very long time ago. Funny. Yeah. That's a cool story. 
two other things, and then okay. I'll let you go. Uh, Technology-wise, you know, you guys are kind of at the top of your game. When, when customers come into the delicatessen, at least, they're greeted with sort of like iPads and POS systems where they place their order and then go to the counter. Um, and it seems to be very smooth and organized. Do you do something similar like that in the bakehouse? And how did you guys get to the point um, to be able to develop all you know, that? You know, that particular ordering style is distinctive of delicatessen, and that came out of COVID. So they're trying to okay. deal with lots of service situations that we've all become aware of on the last couple of years. So they're, yeah, so they're, oh, that's, that's where that started. It, they were not like that. They were very old school where, you know, somebody would be standing there, they take your order, and uh, they had many, many more kind of staff working there. Zero's mail order is really um, probably leads the, the whole organization in sort of technological um innovation and they really affect lean manufacturing i don't know if you know much about lean and toyota way but they have a lot of sort of great technological um uses in their mail order system that allows them to ship out you know thousands of boxes and do a job now they're not like amazon obviously but uh for a food business uh they're doing pretty right. well i'd say at the bakery our service is a little more old school okay i I think there's there's a need for that. Yeah, it's a different kind of nice feeling. Um, So, yep. So, lastly, um, looking back on everything you've done, if you could talk to some young people out there that are starting out in life, trying to figure out maybe they know what they do, maybe they they don't. I love the fact that you didn't necessarily know what you were going to do in college and you were open to learning about the world. I, I personally think that's a great way for a young person to view going to college. Um, do you have any life advice yeah. for people starting out? You know, this might not sound like much, but what I often try to get people to think about is what they really like their day to day to be like, because you might say, Oh, I want to be, a lawyer or I want to be a baker but you find but you're a night person and to be a baker you need to be a morning person or you um really love um farming but you can't stand living any place other than a city so I often talk to people about before you think about exactly what you want to be how do you like to live do you want to walk to work do you like to work a lot do you like to work with do you want to work alone? Uh, do you like details? Do you big picture? And to think about some of those things first. And then maybe they are still interested in the same field, whether it's baking or being a doctor or, you know, an engineer, whatever. But then you can say, okay, where do I want to go in that field based on how I actually like to engage in the world? I think we often forget and don't think about those basic things of, you know, I need a lot of sleep. I don't need any sleep. I want to... I never like, I, I don't like working alone. So for me, this bakery is the best thing in the world. There's always someone here 24 hours a day. I could work whatever and I would be working with a team. I love that. Now there's some people who can't stand that. Like ha- to have to deal with as many people as I talk to every day, they, they would never want it. So I think being in touch with those things is an important um, step in deciding exactly how you want to live your life and what you want to do during it. It's about it. Well, I think there's, there's a lot there. I think there's a lot there. So I, 
I, I appreciate you sharing all that. And Amy, I appreciate you sharing your time. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and learn more about you and the operation. And I look forward yeah, to getting thank there. Thank you. I hope to see you too. Jim. It was really nice to, to meet you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bread for the People featuring Amy Emberling from Zingerman's Bakehouse. If you're interested in advertising on Bread for the People, feel free to shoot me an email at breadforthepeoplepod at gmail.com. Remember, if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review our podcast over on Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Milestone TV and Film and edited by Rick Beck. Have a great day, everyone. Blessed be the bread.